All Things Equity engages conversations with professionals in higher education, nonprofits, industry, and government, working towards equitable workspaces in all disciplines and workforces. Our guest panelists share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience for diversifying the professional, academic, and STEM workforces in the U.S. in equitable ways. Your hosts for this podcast are Dr. Robert Rivers and me, Dr. Margie Vela. Today's podcast guest is Dr. Harry L. Williams. Dr. Williams serves as president and CEO of the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, the nation's largest organization exclusively representing the black college community. Thurgood Marshall College Fund's 47 member schools make up the publicly supported historically black colleges and predominantly black institutions, which represent nearly 300,000 students. In this episode, Harry, Margie, and Rob discuss the journey of a first-generation college graduate from the fields of North Carolina to the nation's capital, the responsibility of bringing others along in your journey through success, the role of college faculty and administrators in supporting first-generation low-income students, the progress made for racial equity in government, education, and industry, and casting a vision that brings people together. Stay tuned for today's episode. Welcome, listeners, and you're back with All Things Equity with Dr. Margie Vela and myself, Rob Rivers. Today, we have the amazing honor and opportunity to talk with Dr. Harry L. Williams. Dr. Williams, it's a pleasure to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you Robert. I'm excited about being a part of this discussion with Marjorie today. We are friends. It's always good when you have friends talking to you. Thanks for being here, Dr. Williams. We're super excited to have you here as well. We're really excited to talk a little bit about, you know, the good work you're doing at Thurgood Marshall Fund uh, for our listeners to learn more about you, your journey growing up in Appalachia, North Carolina, and making it all the way to Washington, D.C. to do some amazing work with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. So um, to get started today, will you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Dr. Margie. Uh, let's make sure your audience realize I'm talking to our PhD here. So that's a big deal. Uh, so uh, we, uh, I'm, I'm honored to be on your program and, and excited to talk about the journey to where I'm at today. And, and it started in a small town in eastern North Carolina, called Greenville, North Carolina. It's the tobacco belt. And it's the world's largest producer of what they call fear-cured uh, tobacco. It's a special type of tobacco that they put into the cigarettes. And the largest production of that is in the eastern part of North Carolina. And so when you're growing up, you end up working in the tobacco fields. And uh, one day I was working in a tobacco field and, and I looked around and, and I saw a lot of people that were up in age. And I said, I don't want that to be my life. And it was it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I just realized at that point in time, you know, the way to get out was going to be through education and education is that journey. And I focused on uh, making sure I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing in school and then having uh, an opportunity to pursue a college degree and being the first in a family of eight. My mother had seven boys and and one girl and I was the only one. Uh, in that group to, to go to college. And, and that's part of the journey from when you're a first generation, low income, coming from a community where, you know, you don't talk about college every day. It's almost like breaking a barrier. 
And then when you break it, then other people can follow along, but it's a process and it's a journey. So I was able to get a athletic scholarship to an institution in the mountains of North Carolina, as you mentioned earlier, Appalachia. For the people who are from New York, that's how they pronounce it, Appalachia. But the people who are from the South, they call it Appalachian. So it's two pronunciations there. Uh, so the school is Appalachian State and had a really good experience there. It was there that I got my real focus and passion on working to improve the quality of life for, for myself and others. And, and I really got a hold of what education could do. And, and I saw it firsthand. And I was part of a program, it's a federally funded program, it's called TRIO program. TRIO is a program that support uh, first generation low income students and, and try to help them with creating that window to dream and create a better life. I had no idea what it was about. I just knew I qualified for it. And there are programs in the trio called Upward Bound. There's a program called uh, Ron McNair Scholars. And and then I was part of a program called SSS, Student Support Services, which uh, provide that type of additional support. And it was that through that program that kind of opened the door for a lot of opportunities. What really made it work was the importance of working hard. and And when you work hard, good things can happen. An incredible story. I really can relate to the whole first generation low income background, right? It, it feels like breaking those barriers sometimes is almost insurmountable, but the more we persist, the more barriers we break, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so at this point in time, I'm going to give a shout out to my father who, you know, I, I broke the barrier as a first generation college student. Dad is an undergrad right now, getting ready to finish up his bachelor's degree and going into Right. So, yeah. So shout out to my dad for his efforts. Right. Um, so I definitely that you know resonates with me. Um, we figure out how to navigate systems. We get through and then we bring others with us. Yeah. And I've always said that that's that's the most impactful and powerful place to be is to bring others with you. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, it's, it's your responsibility. I mean, I think it's your responsibility. You can't have all of this by yourself. I mean, yeah, you're you're you have this the distinct honor of, of being recognized as a PhD. And, but the, the, the beauty of that, others are watching you. And I'm sure your father was motivated by watching you work hard and, and that inspired him and others to do that. And, um, and you have an amazing son that's doing some incredible things and he wouldn't be where he's at now if it wasn't for you and the, and the image and the model that you put in place for him. So, you know, Breaking those barriers are very, very important. So those who are listening out there, and if you're the first one that's navigating through this process, be the trailblazer, you can be the trailblazer because you're going to bring other people along with you that you don't even know that's watching you. And that's the thing, that's the beauty of of the responsibility of someone like yourself and, and being able to use your life as an opportunity to motivate and to encourage uh, and to stay positive, you know, stay positive about everything that you're doing and, and never let the work overwhelm you. I mean, yeah, I've been keeping up with you when when you were pursuing your your Ph.D. and recognizing the, the many, many opportunities came your way. But you never you never, ever allow it to overtake you. I mean, you were able to manage it. You were able to stretch yourself. And, and I think sometimes in life, we don't know how much we can uh, achieve and attain in terms of our capacity. Uh, and because the mind is a very powerful tool and you will be amazed what you can do when you compartmentalize and put things in different buckets. 
and then work on it. There's a lot you can do in 24 hours in a day. If you maximize 24 hours the way you should maximize, a lot you can do and a lot you can capture and by, by being organized and focused. Absolutely. And just a side note, don't let my son hear you say that I can take some credit for his achievements, right? <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but so on that note, you know, will you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing? Because I know you're bringing a lot of people with you um, as you, you know, navigate through the spaces that you're in. And will you tell us about some of the work you're doing with Thurgood Marshall College Fund? Yeah, and, I, and I'm excited about that work because it is a very impactful work. And we get up every single day, focus on the legacy of one of the greatest Supreme Court justices ever live on this planet. Uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall was an associate justice uh, in, the, in the United States Supreme Court, was the first African-American justice uh, to hold this position. Before assuming that role, he was general counsel and lead counsel for the NAACP Legal uh, Defense Fund, which uh, was an organization that was set up to argue and fight for those who did not have anyone fighting for them. And they were able to achieve a lot. And one thing I like to share about Justice Marshall is that before he became a Supreme Court justice, he argued before the Supreme Court 32 times uh, and won 29 of those cases. And you can imagine arguing before the Supreme Court and then coming out of there winning. And one of the landmark cases that he won transform and change this whole entire United States of America was Brown versus Board of Education, a 1954 Supreme Court decision that outlawed separate but equal doctrine that was on the books that came from 1899, a Supreme Court decision, Pressey versus Ferguson, which created the doctrine of separate but equal. And Justice Marshall argued against that and basically tore down segregation that was uh, on the books here in this country. And, and as it had an amazing impact and allowing students to go to school and attend educational institution without any rules or any laws on the book saying that they couldn't, specifically African-Americans. And so the organization, the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, is named after Justice Marshall. He was a two-time historically Black college and university graduate. He graduated uh, at the top of his class from Lincoln University, Lincoln University in Lincoln, Pennsylvania, the first HBCU to grant a four-year degree in 1854 when it was created. And he went there. He's from Baltimore, Maryland. And when he graduated from Lincoln, he wanted to go to law school in Maryland, but they would not allow him to go because uh, the books, on the books were records that said Blacks could not attend law school at white uh, law school. So therefore, he ended up going to law school at Howard University uh, in Washington, D.C., and graduating at the top of his class at Howard. And both of these institutions are part of the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. Our founder, 34 years ago, approached Justice Marshall, actually went to the Supreme Court, met with him, uh, and asked him if he would lend his name to this organization. And he said, why? And she reminded him that he graduated from two historically Black colleges and universities, and we want to honor his legacy and would also wanted to create a, an opportunity to use his name to raise funds to support Black students attending the historically Black colleges and universities, the public ones, there are 47 public HBCUs, and provide scholarships so that students can graduate and have an amazing career themselves. And so going back to that earlier comment I made about responsibility and your responsibility to give back and to give, he recognized the importance of this 
fund being created. And so in that moment, he had his secretary write a letter that he signed giving our founder, Dr. Payne, the rights and privileges to use his name and likeness to raise money without anything coming to his family or to him in terms of royalties of the name recognition. And by using his name, 34 years later, we've been able to raise more than a half a billion dollars uh, to support students attending these institutions. And that's part of the, the spirit of our responsibility when we achieve success in life is to, to help others. So this organization is designed to help those who do not have the resources to continue in college and to stay in college. And then afterwards, uh, to secure major jobs because we work with corporate America and identifying internships opportunity for, for African-Americans and creating these door openers. We call them door openers uh, for them. And uh, that's what we do every day. We, we're in Washington. We advocate uh, up on the Hill with our members of Congress. We work with the, the White House on HBCU initiatives to continue to, to support these institutions because they play a critical role in America to play a critical role in the economic development of our country. And so um, to be able to be in a position in this role here as president and CEO of this organization and to lead this at uh, this time in my life, it's an honor. And I don't look at it as a job. It's a mission that we are focused on because we know at the end of the day, we're, we're helping people that don't even know that we're helping them. Uh, we have children that are being born right now that will benefit from this fund uh, and, and without this fund, in some cases, it would be very difficult for some of our young people to go to college and so and have a what we call you go to college to have a better life. Uh, and by having a better life, it creates value around you and others will be able to be a part of that. Thank you, Dr. Williams. You know, as you talked about your early journey, basically taking Tobacco Road up the Appalachian Trail to f further success, I wonder if there's one or two things you could point to that now influences the initiatives and programs you're spearheading, either when you're at Delaware State or now at the Thurgood Marshall College Fund? Yeah, I'll tell you one of the things that probably motivated me more than anything was when I had this incredible experience of working uh, at North Carolina A&T State University. Aggie pride. Yeah, yeah, Aggie. They love that. They love that down there at A&T. So you know, when I was the uh, director of admissions there, I worked in undergraduate admissions at North Carolina A&T, and, and it was there that I really saw firsthand the importance of having key administrators in key positions that can make the process for students going to college smooth and easy. And sometimes we don't think about the anxiety that people might have about going to college. And we don't think about the anxiety, especially if you're the first in your family, on whether or not you can do it and whether or not you have the confidence to, to be able to do it. And I never forget this. And it probably touched me more than anything. As the director, I would meet with incoming students who were interested in coming to the school and trying to gain admissions into the institution. There was one young lady who was in the lobby waiting to, to speak with me. And I went out and greeted her and brought her into my office and I asked her how she was doing. It looked like she had been sweating and was really nervous. And I, and I said, all right, I said, are you okay? She said, well, it's just, it's taken me four hours to build up my nerve to come into this office. She said, I sat in my car for three and a half hours uh, debating whether or not to walk into this office. And once I got in here, I got real nervous and then didn't know anybody would come and talk to me. And the fact that you're talking to me 
uh, is pretty intimidating for me. And I, and I just wanted you to know I'm really, really scared right now. And so, you know, sometimes people don't understand that. But that step that she made by coming in was a big step. So I had to reassure her that that step was the right step for her and to give her the confidence to continue the process of moving forward and how you handle that situation and how you deal with people uh, is very important. And so part of the lesson for me is that, you know, you got to understand, try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who are walking in and don't just treat them like a, a number off the street, sort of speak. And it was a big lesson for me uh, to be able to take that and be able to use that in my my journey in working with people and in encouraging people and recognizing that I may not know what you have gone through or going through personally, but having some empathy to, with you, to work with you, to help you. And that particular young lady, we got her in school and and she was amazed that she met the requirements to get into school and that she had worked hard. And she was just shocked to, to your question about things that have influenced me. My time there at North Carolina a and played a critical role in my uh, development and my focus on what I wanted to do for the rest of my life because I saw it. And it was there at that moment that I recognized very clearly that this is what I want to do. And I want to do this uh, at a level that will be very, very impactful and to be able to use the position to help someone, not help yourself, but use it to help someone else. And that's part of leadership is being in a role to be able to, to use the skills that you bring along to serve. That's what leadership is. Service is not to be served, but is to serve. And when you can, when you get that piece and you understand that, then the rewards of serving will be life changing and will be rewarding for the rest of your life. Because, you know, to know that you help someone uh, and to provide them with an opportunity to not only elevate themselves, but also to elevate their families uh, is very, very important. That's absolutely right. The work that we do with students changes a legacy, right? Changes a legacy for not just for the student's lifetime, but for everybody who comes after them. And I think that's such important work and such. That's what I love doing, right? That's that's what um, inspired me to continue my PhD um, yep. or go back for my PhD was that I was um, seeing students every day who, whose lives were being changed and whose legacies were being changed. And I got the privilege to work with you. And, and seriously, I am, you know, a fan. I'm a Harry Williams fan, right? <laughs> um, but getting well, to Marty work. I'm a fan too, so we're both fans of each other. <laughs> Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, but uh, working, you know, under your leadership at Delaware State, I, I saw something like a transformation of this organization. I saw um, the, the same year that I started my position at Dell State was the year you started your presidency at Dell State. And I remember the conversations happening around the tables that I was at where, you know, folks were talking about this transformational leader. And we're really glad that, you know, Harry has made it to the presidential role because I think you were the provost prior. Right, right. Yes. And what I saw was a culture that really empowers students to be confident, to uh, develop some self-efficacy, to uh, engage in opportunities that was going to make them competitive after their education. So everything that we talked about, especially around smile tables, right, right. were were things that um, were creating opportunities to engage students on campus while they were there, to give them skill sets that they could use when they left, um, and to ensure that they were 
well taken care of by this campus community. And you were an instrumental part of that conversation and that culture. And so, you know, that's why I'm a Harry fan, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's seriously why I, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, if, if I can have the, you know, a quarter or a, just a tiny bit of the impact that you've had on my life in somebody else's life, this world would be a better place, right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I want to thank you for your service to others because it's just incredible. Thank um, you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So on that note, like I've, uh, I recently read a book called The Privileged Poor by Anthony Abram Jack. And this book is really instrumental, in my opinion, in trying to help us understand what equity looks like on college campuses. Right. So um, it really is targeted to, you know, what do students, first generation, low income students, what experiences do they have on elite campuses? But it really translates to all campuses. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in this, I see those stories of, of students who are afraid to have the conversations, to walk into office hours and make connections, Mm. students who don't show up at the social events because they don't know the value of the network that they can establish and and that kind of thing. So our frontline folks, you know, people who are faculty members and middle management on campuses, our department heads and our deans are all trying to make some headway here in this equity space, right? A lot of us are trying to make some headway as we begin to build these bridges for students. Um, What are some of the metrics that you would advise us to start looking out for? Like, how do we know we're making an impact in the equity space for students on the day-to-day? When you're working with students and they're the first in their families to go to college, and there's a lot of pressures associated with that, other people are watching you regardless of what ethnic group you might be from, uh, but they're all watching you and they're trying to see if you're going to make it. And there's a lot of challenges that can come in their, in their way in terms of self-doubt that they might have. Do I really need to be here? Is this really me? You know, this is not me. But you, you have to be able to encourage those young people to say that you are breaking barriers again. Another aspect of it, when you're poor and you come from a community, believe it or not, people want to see people get out and and they brag about their affiliation with you and they brag about knowing that they knew you. And it's important for you to um, always stay humble and making it focused not only about them, but about the bigger picture and take yourself out of it. And one, one mechanism that I think from a tracking perspective is uh, create the appropriate data to guide your thinking in terms of how well these students are performing in class. If they're an undergraduate, you make sure that you have the right courses that they are engaging in. So for an example, if you know you have an introductory level course or introductory level faculty member that he or she might be, you know, uh, an expert in helping students navigate through these processes, you make sure those students get in those classes uh, and with the right professors who have a have an empathy and an understanding of where these students are coming from and not giving them a handout, but but giving them uh, an understanding to, to let them know that they understand their situation. But pushing them along the way and then tracking their performance in those classes would be a good mechanism to measure that. Another tracking mechanism is using, you know, I know you did this in the SMILES program, but it's a good mechanism of mentoring and studying habits, setting up the right structure for success. Like success is not by accident. 
the reason why you have a real high retention rate, first generation low income students who are in a science program or STEM related program is because you are very intrusive in their lives and they feel it. The biggest thing is when someone sense that they are doing something for someone else and the emotional attachment that they have to that uh, because they don't want to let you down. When you engage them and you let them know that you're pushing them, but you're pushing them to be better, uh, that you'll be surprised what these students will step up and and do. I'll give you a a clear example. When I was at Delaware State as president, one of the programs that we started for undocumented students is for students whose parents came to this country and for some reason or another, they did not have the legal status of, of being a, a citizen. And they went to the public schools and they excelled. But there are laws on our books that say that if you're undocumented, you cannot attend a public institution. You cannot um, receive any federal assistance. And there's a program called Dream.us. And we were approached and they were looking for institutions that would have an open door for these young people. And when the organizer approached me. I met with him in the governor's office in Delaware, and we said yes. And we and we were the first HBCU in the country and by far the only one so far that have said yes to these young people. And this program has been going on now for about four years. They've had uh, several graduation cohorts, and their graduation number is 99%. And you say, wow, wow. And it's because they are there and they know why they're there and their retention rate is 99. I mean, it's just, just some of the numbers are just off the chart. They have the financial support from a philanthropic donor and they are brilliant. And these students did well in high school, but now they're in college and they're just looking for a place to go. And some of them are on path to citizenship and they're working here. And we've written letters to senators and Congress people trying to get them to pass legislation and also getting the Supreme Court to rule in uh, that these students have a right to be citizens and they should be able to get the same privileges that Americans get because their parents may not be legal citizens, but you shouldn't deny them an education because of that, because they can be contributing citizens and they love this country just as much as anyone else. And that's what this country is about. But the metric that was used there was looking at their retention their graduation numbers and looking at how well they performed because they had the resources, they had the support. And when you got those two working, you'll be amazed what first generation students can, can accomplish. Absolutely. It's interesting because the first generation college students, whether documented or undocumented, right? All first generation college students go to college to succeed. Nobody says, you know, I'm going to go to college to fail, right? Um, right. Go to college right. to succeed. And, and I think in a lot of households, and I know growing up in my household, right, um, my father is from Juarez, Mexico. My mother is from Puerto Rico. And my grandparents all immigrated to the United States. Um, but in my household, we talked about college all the time. We yep. just didn't know how to navigate the system, right? We didn't right, know how right. to navigate college. So I ended up with a ton of student debt, which is, you know, not fun. But, mm-hmm. you know, one of these days it'll get paid off, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, yeah, I know. I know it will. <laughs> but, you know, that that navigation, if, if we can set up support systems for students, students can do a whole lot. I mean, there's just there's no stopping them. You know, there's a, there's a dream. There's a focus. And with the right support, there's a lot of achievement and success, right? And Absolutely. so, Absolutely. yeah. So thank you for bringing that up and talking about that a little bit. It connects completely with this idea that students know why they're there. 
and they're, they're, they're there to succeed and to move their careers forward. It's how as administrators and, and lecturers and professors, how do we ensure that hard work pays off and that those values lead to success? And that sort of leads me thinking, you know, how can institutional partners truly engage in moving the needle for diversity? What does that look like? How does that happen? Um, because it sounds like you've had a lot of experience really pushing transformative visions that have led to greater inclusion with metrable levels of success. So how, how in academia and higher ed and in society, can we really do the same across the board? What would be your vision for, for the country in this moment? I think your, your, your assessment is spot on, Robert, in terms of the responsibility of these institutions to wrap their arms around these students and not look at it as this is my job to teach English 101 or to teach biology. No, your job is to invest into the student that's in your classroom. And by feeding into them, you're creating this incredible uh, knowledge machine that's going to allow others to, 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 to learn from it and to benefit from it. So the power that you have is so, so significant. And so what I think is important, and we've been able to do this with corporations, at the end of the day, in this country, the bottom line, this country was built uh, on the foundation of, of a business model and how do you generate revenue in that model in terms of that process and recognizing that economics plays a critical role in whatever we do and looking at the fact that you have more students than others that fall into the category of first generation low income. And we have a responsibility to move more of those students out of that situation because the more people we have in the middle class, the stronger this country will be. You don't wanna have just a rich class here and a lower class, and then you don't have anything in the middle. And what you, if you have two different classes like that, what happens is that the rich will continue to get richer and then the poor will eventually get into a place where there will be rebellion. And that rebellion could turn into uh, what's happening right now in Cuba. If you look at you know, what real time now with the, the frustration that, that the Cuban people have dealt with the uh, situation with the communist regime over there. And now for the first time in I don't know how many years, they are now going to the streets complaining about just basic uh, resources, food, water, light, you know, now the rich, they got all that. But when you have the masses that don't have that, then you're going to have a disruption within that structure. So it, economically, it's to America's benefit to create a structure that would allow more people to be able to take advantage of the American dream and to be in a middle class. And we've been able to do that here in this country to create this middle class. And then that middle class is going to be the class that's going to, that's going to drive it. But right now, unfortunately, in this country, uh, African-Americans' uh, net worth is at the bottom of the pole when it comes to net worth in this, in this country. At 24000 family of, of $24,000 is a net worth of the average family, a Black family. And the average net worth for whites in this country is $188,000. So you see the disparity there between $188,000 and $24,000. So the more people that you can bring up and, and, and that that wealth gap between blacks and white, that hasn't changed in the last 60 years. Our job 
And part of our educational journey is to get more people up. And when you start moving that wealth number up, that's going to make uh, this country even stronger. And it's going to make the quality of life for people even better you know, than what we have right now. So to your original question, educational plays a critical role in supporting that. And institutions of higher education, we're still the number one higher education institutions in the world. Everybody wants to be in the United States of America. Our educational system is by far the best educational system that you will find anywhere else in the world. The higher education is the envy of the world. And so, therefore, more than 3,000 four-year institutions in this country and the opportunity to use that in a way that's going to continue to improve this country. That's why Congress invests billions of dollars into higher ed is because of the importance of these institutions and the role that they play in shaping and helping the lives of others, but at the end of the day, but it's helping with the economy in this country and making this country stronger. Dr. Williams, well, you brought up the fact that there has been no change in wealth and the gap between European descendants and African descendants in this country over the past 60 years. It makes you think back of everything that's happened over the last year with the, the rise of Black Lives Matter. And once again, a renewed focus on what are inherent rights and what are inherent opportunities for everyone in this country. How do we ensure that what was happening in the streets and the marches and so forth don't really just stay as a a hashtag movement or a a political movement, but actually leads to real changes in, in bank accounts and the attainment of wealth, attainment of jobs and attainment of opportunity for everyone in the country? What do you think? Is this real? Do you feel a change is actually being is happening now? Do you think we're going to start addressing the the wealth disparities that if we look across history, it has been there since the end, mm-hmm. since the end of the Civil War, the gap shortened and then the laws were changed to ensure that gap was widened yet again. So every time you, you feel like something's getting better, laws are, are changed or in such a way where some people are left out. So where are we now? So the question, is this change here to stay? From my observation, I believe it is. I think is is here to stay mainly because of I go back to what I said earlier about the economic engine of this country and what's important as it relates to to how this country moves. Uh, and corporate America is saying it's important. And corporate America is putting this as part of their evaluation systems. Uh, they're taking their diversity and inclusion position and making it into a position that has authority. And and you're going to see some impact in that area. You're going to see some significant impact in trying to address it. Go back to when Kaepernick started the the kneeling aspect to bring attention to the inequities that Black men face in this country. And everybody ran away from him except for one company, Nike. Think about that. Everybody ran away from him, Didn't didn't want to touch NFL didn't want to touch him, didn't want to touch him, but Nike embraced him. Now, Nike embraced him because who's buying Nike? Look at the market. Look at the people who are in the Nike stores. Who's getting the shoes? The Air Jordans. 
I mean, you think about that. So it's an economic play here we're talking about now that comes into play in a way that I think is getting the attention of a lot of people uh, that because of the buying power of African-Americans in this country, our buying power is significant. And so therefore, you want to make sure you are addressing some of the concerns there uh, in a way that is positive. Uh, Congress has stepped up in a federal level. We've received more funding than we have ever received in the history of funding for HBCUs, over $5 billion in the last year uh, of new dollars. This is not reoccurring dollars. This is in addition to your normal allocation of new dollars. This current administration has made it a priority. Uh, This past election cycle, every single Democratic candidate for the first time in American history had an HBCU platform. What they would do if they were elected president and how would they impact and support HBCUs? That never happened before. We now have a HBCU graduate as a vice president of the United States. We have more HBCU graduates in Congress than we've ever had. Uh, We have in legislature, in the state houses. So yes, I think this structure has hit a place where it's going to be part of what we do and this country I'm proud of in addressing and recognizing the importance of these contributions that African-Americans have played here. Unfortunately, George Floyd uh, death had to occur, unfortunately, in a way that got the attention of so many people to see firsthand a tragic murder right in front of us. Uh, where we witnessed that, and that touched the core of America. And and when you see that humanity there, that, that lack of respect for human being and the way he died, uh, that's not America. And so that's America, that's not the image that America would like to have all, all over the world. So by addressing that, you have to deal with the reality of, of the facts that you still have a group of people in this country that are still being disenfranchised and are still being overlooked. And the only way we're going to change it, we got to address it. And leadership would do that. So I think that will occur, Robert, I think is occurring. I think the focus has got to continue. Uh, We cannot stop and we got to continue to work hard uh, because you're not going to find anyone more committed, more dedicated uh, to this country than African-Americans. And so the life and the things that our people have built for this country without without payment in terms of reparations, it is is amazing uh, that, you know, we still come and we still get up every day and we still show our allegiance to this great country. Thank you so much. I think your answer is spot on. It harkens back to what James Baldwin says. It's like, who loves this country more than the black man who still calls himself American after the history he's had? Right, right. And, right. <laughs> I, and I think you're enunciating a vision, too. So it's how how do you bring others into that vision? Because I, I think you're, you're writing a vision. How do we keep moving forward in right. terms of this? How do we keep moving forward in terms of educational opportunities? You showed your visionary leadership and how do we ensure that opportunities are there for individuals who have a DACA? Like, what's your vision now? How can we start drinking the Kool-Aid early? Well, I think part of it is, going back to what I said, again, you take yourself out of it and you look at what's going to make somebody else's life better. And we want to get up and we want to focus on those opportunities that will help enhance and make the lives of other people better than where they are currently right now. And part of that is creating uh, an America that will embrace that. And one thing about Dr. Martin Luther King, if you listen to his words, he was a visionary. 
and and his transformation for this country was incredible because even in his most famous speech, I Have a Dream speech, he talked about what this country would look like. And you remember he talked about my little girl's one day walking in a hand where they can walk hand in hand. He talked about the Jews and the Catholics and the Protestants all working together. That's visionary. But he went all around the country, you know, from slope cap mountains of Colorado down to Stone Mountain, Georgia. And, and connecting all those dots together, he was actually painting a picture of what America could look like in the future. And by putting that out there, People grasped a hold of it because that's what gave them hope. One of the most famous speeches outside of the I Have a Dream was his last speech that he gave right before he died. He talked about seeing the promised land. And he said, you know, I've looked over the mountain. He used some, some again, spiritual visuals to, to paint this picture of things will get better. Just like the Israelites, you know, Moses leading the Israelites and changing the world in terms of the challenges that they, they had to face, the Jewish people faced in this world. But you had to continue to preach hope and you create that vision out there that people can see. And he said, I looked over and said, I looked over the mountain and he, and he said, I've seen the promised land. And when you say that, the people who don't see it, they grasp hold of it. And they have hope of getting there one day. And I think part of our vision here is to make sure we can paint this picture and people can see it. And then you work towards it every single day uh, in terms of how you're going to achieve it. An image that's in your mind that you can visualize that this will happen one day. We don't have to go to the back of the bus to get on the bus. We don't have to go through a certain door to, to get our food. We don't have to go to a certain door to drink our water. I mean, someone had to paint that picture instead of accepting society as it is today. And so currently, contemporarily, where we are, I think painting the picture that, you know, we're going to see more African-Americans and others in, in corporate leadership positions and in the Fortune 500 companies at the top of the chain. And in order you do that, you got to start from one place to kind of move that process along and people will grasp hold of that. And I, and I sense and see that happening uh, real time right now, but more of that has got to continue. So the, the vision has got to be very clear. You got to have a understanding that it's going to make the lives of others better. And when you do that, it's going to make the whole entire country better. Dr. Williams, thank you. Yeah. Thank Preach. you for yeah, exactly. Preach. Like I felt Habakkuk two two coming through. And I was like, well, yeah, pa- <laughs> Pastor Williams, well, write that vision, make it plain. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. I truly thank you for being with us today and for for sharing your words of wisdom. Um, these are many gold nuggets that we can all grasp onto from today's uh, episode, and so I really appreciate you taking time to share with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm honored to be on on the show, and and I uh, look forward to to listening to it. Uh, I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing. And thank you for uh, being a good friend. And thank you for connecting and staying staying in in contact because uh, your journey is a positive journey and it's going to continue to to change the lives of so many other people. And so thank you for that. 
Thank you for listening to All Things Equity. We appreciate your interest in being part of today's conversation. Please visit www.morethanagrad.org to access more information about this podcast and view the resources referenced in this episode. Connect with More Than a Grad on LinkedIn and Instagram for up-to-date information about all things equity. Please subscribe, share, and review the podcast to keep the conversation going. This podcast is produced independent of funding and is supported by the contributions of volunteer hosts, guests, and editors working towards equity. Music by Elijah Vela. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations presented in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of any organization and are solely of the person communicating them. Signing off until next time.